Hello, welcome to Dustbusters, your inseparable companion podcast to His Dark Materials. I'm Jake Cunningham, and Philip Pullman's original fantasy series of books is probably my favourite collection of novels ever written. I've been waiting for this new TV series for a very, very, very long time. And I'm Louisa Maycock. Jake and I have been together for almost a decade, and I have never read a single one of these books. Yes, and uh, they say that in a relationship you kind of need to have differences to keep things fresh, don't they? Uh, So ultimately, with the goal of this podcast being to get people interested in His Dark Materials and the TV show, uh, if that does happen, it will mean the end of our relationship. (laughs) So over the next couple of months, we're going to be watching every new episode of the new HBO and BBC adaptation and delving into them with special guests and talking about our thoughts about the original texts and these new visions. So join us as we step into the world or worlds of his dark materials. Dustbusters is sponsored by Penguin Random House, the publishers of Philip Pullman's work. And if you're already a fan and looking for even more of Lyra's world, The Book of Dust, The Secret Commonwealth is out now, which picks up where The Amber Spyglass, the third in the His Dark Materials trilogy, left off. It's out now in hardback, ebook and audio, which is read by Michael Sheen. So, it's the start of Dustbusters. Louis, lovely to see you. Hello. It's been a while. Yes, it has, isn't it? (laughs) It's almost like we live together. (laughs) Almost. Yeah. Sometimes it feels that way. And we've welcomed someone into our home, the commissioning editor for the BBC's film documentary series Inside Cinema and Little White Lies Truth and Movies podcast host, Michael Leader. Hi, Jake. Hi, Louisa. Hello, Michael. How are you doing, Michael? I'm all right. Thank you so much for inviting me into your home this toasty autumnal evening. Yeah. And I I think this show has a bit of that to it, doesn't it? It's got that autumnal warmth um, and I'm excited to talk about it with you both. But I think before we delve into this brand new episode, episode one, Lyra's Jordan, I think it's important to get our personal context about this massive series of books. Because as I mentioned, I love them a lot, but I know that not everyone does. Not even, not everyone here has even read a single page of them. Um, (laughs) But to get everyone up to speed, the first book is called Northern Lights. And that came out in 1995, written by Philip Pullman. He started writing it in 1993. Uh, he was working as a school teacher as well as writing. Uh, he had written a series of books before that, including the popular Sally Lockhart series. And then in, after the popularity of Northern Lights, that's when he committed and put all his chips on the table and started writing these all out full time. And that led to The Subtle Knife, The Amber Spyglass. That's the complete His Dark Materials trilogy. And then after that, we've had spin-off books, Lyra's Oxford, Once Upon a Time in the North. And now we've got a brand new series of books, The Book of Dust, which is coming out now. We've just seen the second one of those released. And I love all of these books (laughs) a lot. And I am very excited and very hesitant about an adaptation of it. But I want to gauge where you are, because I'm hoping that as we talk to people on this podcast, we're going to meet people that are coming to the show brand new for the first time. And it's going to be just as exciting as interesting for them. Michael, what does His Dark Materials mean to you? So the full extent of my experience with uh, His Dark Materials is I read the first chapter on a school lunch break in the school library when I was a teenager and never went any further. Not because I didn't like it, but I just put the book back on the shelf and thought, I'll read that someday. I've bought the books a good couple of times over as presents for family, knowing that it's a good gateway 13, 14-year-old type presents to give to people. But now it's become one of those things. I'm sure the two of you have these uh, examples of these where 
you have a blind spot in your relationship. One person has a deep obsession and the other person hasn't yes. even looked at them. Well, yes. Well, like I have them. looked at them. Uh-huh. You've looked at the books on the show. You've looked at me reading them multiple times. And Jake, you gave me a copy of the first book. And I have read, I think, the first chapter. But that's the full extent. So it's become with me and my partner one of those things where she's tried many times to make me read more. And I will one day get to it. But for now, I'm quite happy in my ignorance to drop references or jokes and say it's just like harry potter isn't it <laughs> it's like lord it's like lord of the rings but a bit shorter <laughs> and uh, much to her humongous chagrin <laughs> those comments but for the tv series i'm fully on board because it's got daphne keen in the lead role she made such a huge impression in logan a couple of years ago the superhero movie that wasn't really a superhero movie if you trust James Mangold, the director. And she played the young sort of Wolverine clone. And she was fantastic. And she only spoke in Spanish in that movie. And then you find out on Wikipedia that she's actually English-Spanish. And she has fully English dialogue in this in this TV show. So I was on board for that. And Louis, did you have... Were you completely ambivalent to a, his Dark Materials adaptation? You just... Were you going to just flick it on on a Sunday and see what happens? I think so. I think, you know, when I was growing up, I was very much part of the Harry Potter school of sort of... That's just his dark materials for kids. (laughs) (laughs) And so I had friends who would read his dark materials and I thought, yes, I will get around to it one day. But then I got past a certain age and I started reading other things and it felt like I'd almost missed the window of time where it'd be appropriate for me to start reading them. And now it's now. Yeah. Well, that didn't stop me. I, um, <laughs> I, I don't didn't... think you would, I don't think you had read a book before you met me. <laughs> I would, I, I read, I'm just very slow at reading to this day. I, I like to read a lot. Um, but it just takes my, I take my time when I'm doing it. Um, and the only book series I've really got into as a kid was uh, a series of unfortunate events. Um, just to tell you how slow I am. Prisoner of Azkaban was too long for me. Wow. Um, the shortest <laughs> novel, right? One that's, of them. that's the book where I gave up on those. <laughs> um, and I was bought these like you were um, um, around, I don't know, 12, 13. And I remember just even a few pages knowing this is not for me. And I put them down and uh, I picked it up again, I think when I was 18, 19. What made you decide to pick it up again? My brother. Okay. Uh, just a recommendation. And... Uh, I fell in love with it and uh, have gone over them multiple times. I, I really love these books. And I think it's important to talk about the film, like the expectation we have both as a His Dark Materials show, but also the, the team behind it, because I think that's really interesting as well. Jack Thorne is the screenwriter who has got a lot of credits um, from Skins and This Is England coming up in cinemas is The Aeronauts, uh, directed by Tom Harper. But in between there, maybe the thing that people might know him most for is doing the Harry Potter and the Cursed Child play. And so I think he's got that pedigree of taking this beloved thing, taking it into a new media and still getting praise for it, still getting affection for it. And from fans, still getting appreciation as well. And I imagine that's why he's been brought onto this. But in the director's chair for these first two episodes, we've got Tom Hooper, mm-hmm. if I put that name out there, uh, how do we feel about that? 
Well, he certainly has a successful career in the director's mm-hmm. chair, doesn't he? From the King's Speech to the, the upcoming Cats, which I'm sure will be one of the big films of the Christmas period. I don't know how I really feel about Tommy, but now I think that the King's Speech has something going for it. Perhaps his films since, like Les Mis, not so much. But he also made The Damned United. Don't forget that. That's a film that's worth revisiting, I think. Louis, any strong thoughts on Tom Hooper? I'm ambivalent towards him. <laughs> I mean, I'm accepting I come to this with an open mind and open heart. If Eddie Redmayne and Benedict Cumberbatch are the standard bearers of a sort of middle-brow British cinema in front of the camera, he is definitely directing them behind the camera. He's created that sense of prestige, BAFTA-winning British cinema that Americans love so much. Mm-hmm. Perhaps as Brits who are into film and TV, we don't, we're not as much on board with that. But I am in, I'm intrigued. This is a property where you just need a good, steady hand behind the till. Yeah, and as... A fan, in a way, that's what I want as well. I would be more concerned if it was like a director who I thought was going to maybe try and push his stamp onto it. I'm not saying like Quentin Tarantino or anything was going to be brought in, but a a director like that with such a recognisable identity would have maybe caused some worries for me. If they denounced this as being the next Stephen Moffat series, for example, with Mm. Mark Gatiss involved, that that would be much more of a shock, right? Mm. Whereas I think... He's, he's a perfectly fine name to have attached to this project. Yeah. And it's um, not the first time that this has been adapted. Of course, there is The Golden Compass, the film that Philip Pullman recently said deserved all the three stars that most magazines gave it. Um, and neither of you have seen that either. <laughs> but you say a, a visionary directors stamping their, their perspective on a franchise. Chris White's? Mm. from the American Pie movies wow. directing this hundred odd million dollar Harry Potter beating could could be franchise all I know about that film is that I'm a big Kate Bush fan and during that time where it felt that she'd retired and we'd never see hear anything from her again she did record Lyra's song for that film and that's not the full extent of my knowledge of that apart from the fact that you have Daniel Craig and Nicole Kidman and Ian McKellen as a polar bear mm. Yeah. Oh, he's the polar bear. Mm-hmm. Wow. Okay, now I'm completely sold. I'm on board. Well, maybe we'll get down to watching that one day on the show as well. Um, and His Dark Materials has also been adapted to stage, uh, to great success, and also on the radio as well. But I think maybe it's time to delve into it, down into episode one, which is called Lyra's Jordan. Uh, not an epic tale about one girl and her lost basketball sneaker, uh, <laughs> but in fact, the first entry into probably my most anticipated TV series ever. So I think the place to start with this is with a nice chunky wall of text. <laughs> um, so I've already mentioned that I was a slow reader. Uh, so maybe maybe this was a bad place to start for me. Um, I'll give you both and the listeners out there a quick reread of those words that came up in case you missed it, because there was a lot to take in. So my best audio book voice, you know, guys, if Michael Sheen ever leaves, <laughs> I'm here. This story starts in another world, one that is both like and unlike your own. Here, a human soul takes the physical form of an animal Known as a demon, the relationship between human and demon is sacred. This world has been controlled for centuries by the all-powerful Magisterium, except in the wilderness of the north, 
where witches whisper of a prophecy, a prophecy of a child with a great destiny. Okay, so well, that was fantastic. Like, well done, Jake. I feel very relaxed now. Thank you. Um, so I'm just going to let, like, let you guys kind of think about that of all, all the new worlds in their new words. Uh, that's what you were given ahead of delving into this first episode. Now I'm going to give you what we learn about Northern Lights, the text in the first page of the book before he explains the the rest of the series and the rules that go with it. This is the equivalent. Northern Lights is the first part of a story in three volumes. The first volume is set in a universe just like ours, but different in many ways. <laughs> and that's it. Uh-huh. So that's what Philip Pullman gives you if you're reading it. Whereas if we've got the TV show, we've got to put all this stuff out in advance just to kind of give people a little bit of an idea of the world that we're heading into. And I've got to ask, what are your first impressions of Lyra's Oxford? It was a lot to take in at first. I think coming at this with no prior knowledge of the original texts, I just decided that I would let it sort of wash over me, not wonder why or how too much, and just try to come at this, you know, just seeing it as a human story, which probably isn't the way that you normally would with a fantasy. Yeah, I, I wonder how much people are actually taking in those words. I don't think I, I was to begin with. You've got to take into account the fact that this TV series wouldn't exist if it weren't for the success of Game of Thrones. Yes. The fact that Lord of the Rings is coming back to Amazon soon. And of course, Harry Potter continues to be a success. And they have a few, let's say, trigger phrases there that will ignite certain parts of people's imaginations. The, the fact that the North is some great mm-hmm. uncharted land of mystery. The fact that we have a mysterious magisterium, whatever that may be. And likewise, we know that there are witches, but we also know that there's some sort of... Chosen child. Exactly, which is very Harry Potterish. Very Harry Potter. It's a lot of text to take in straight away. And as somebody who had no real sense, I knew that there would be polar bears bounding around next to characters. I could have just seen that straight away and know, know where I was. I didn't need to be told that they were exact one representations of people's souls or whatever that was mm. it was a lot to take in basically mm-hmm. and almost goes against everything i know about good storytelling surely you should show not tell exactly yeah i think i think it's a tough one and it is very different to how it re- uh, pullman tells the story on the page uh where we i think great great fantasy like this will not explain the rules of the world to you mm. it will put you in the world and as you go along as characters learn things as they interact with magical objects organically. That's when we work out how they work. Like there are words that we'll encounter along the way that will have different meanings to our words for science, electricity. And just through the context and the actions of the characters and the settings in the book, you you pick up on their meaning organically. And rather than having to have a little... Off a little uh, footnote at the bottom to say, here's what this means. I don't think it helped me feel that I had a better grasp of what to expect. It just meant that you were starting every scene where there's one of the opening scenes where we're introduced to Oxford, where we see Clark Peters in, in a gown. We're like, oh, is this the Magisterium? 
we've been primed to expect of certain concepts and people and organizations when really we could have just figured that out halfway through this episode. If, I don't know. That feels like an exec's point up front. Like, can yeah. we not just introduce a few of these terms? Just to be safe, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that's absolutely fair. Um, but when we get into Oxford and we see Lyra with her friend Roger uh, bouncing across rooftops and through kitchens and under through some the, sort of mausoleum as well yeah. um the i think this is brilliant and this is so the spirit of the oxford from the book and it's a great way of introducing those characters and their demons and i think the demons here are beautiful i think pantalimon that's uh lyra's demon who is this little white ermine mm. um but you can see i don't know where the listeners would have picked this up from the episode that when uh, when you're a child, your demon, who is this representative of your soul outside your body, uh, it's an animal and it can change. And so as you're a child, it bounces around from species to species. And then as you get older, at one point it will settle. Uh, and we see that in a scene in a bit. Um, and I, I love that Oxford because for me, one of the great joys of restarting the books is knowing that for a good chunk of it at the start, we just get to be beside Lyra as Philip Pullman gradually very built, very gradually builds this world. And it feels so lived in and it's making it so a huge part of her that even as a reader, we become homesick for it as the stories go on. Um, and for these little chunks as she's bouncing around with Roger, that's the Oxford that I see from the books. And it's exactly right. Um, but there are, there are these other bits as well where it's, it's kind of playing a bit fast and loose with it. Really? And I think there is, uh, there's a scene involving the Egyptians. Uh-huh. Uh, this is the scene with the people that live on boats and where there is a, a settlement ceremony where one character, has, his demon is settled as a hawk. And that kind of came out of nowhere for me because that, that ceremony doesn't happen in Northern Lights. Uh, that's, that's a new creation. Uh, and I wonder, because for me, that, that was the first time that I kind of metaphorically jumped out of my chair or pointed at the screen. Um, was, did you feel anything different about that? Well, that's the scene where we didn't need the text up front, where we find out that that's what these demons are, how important they are in somebody's growth as a, as a person, how at a certain stage in your adolescenthood going into manhood or womanhood, you you will have this ceremony. So I think that's almost an important bit of exposition if you are going to be crunching down these novels into this TV series. Although I must say, the Egyptians, the, the fact that they are, they, they almost fall into that slightly problematic trope of the salt of the earth characters taking on elements of indigenous populations. In this case, they're, I mean, Egyptians is just literally like three letters away from being gypsies and they live under a bridge and they're on their their houseboats ca- yeah houseboat folk and not to say that you know, it's really well cast i love seeing Anne-Marie duff and james cosmo in these roles but it, if i'd heard that this series from many of my friends and including my partner who've read this i know this is like philosophy this is not kids book these are really complex well-drawn well-realized worlds and characters and i wonder how much that was just because of on screen, these tropes become a bit more problematic and fleshed out. I think it brings about, it made me think more of a sort of religious 
experience, you know, in terms of the type of ceremony young people go through in different religions. Yeah, so, like, a, like a bar mitzvah. Like a bar mitzvah. Um, what's the Catholic one? Confirmation. <laughs> Confirmation. Um, yeah, so it's it's sort of establishing that this element of this young person's life, it's going to be almost um, religion to them. Can demons talk to each other? Yes. I don't think it was very clear whether you well, have this, a, vo- a voice with your particular demon. I didn't demon. know whether the voice could be heard by everyone else or whether it was something that only the person and their own demon could hear so that they could interact with each other or whether it was... Because surely walking down the street would be so noisy with all the demons talking and all the humans talking. Yeah, I mean, could well be. There's... Um, I. There is lots of uh, rules and demon law out there, which maybe the show will get into about like when it's appropriate to touch and things like that. Um, and I hope it does explore that. Um, but yeah, I, I, I think it like that bond between um, someone and their demon is, is so important. And I, I don't know if it does quite get that in this first episode. I think the demons themselves on screen are are great and yet yeah, they can talk to each other and they it's not in their heads or anything they are they are speaking out loud um but i, I really hope they nail down because that relationship is really interesting and um in fact the the first four letters of northern lights are lyra and her demon mm. that's that's at the core of these texts and i'm looking forward to seeing where they go and jake i need to ask you Dust. What is this? Yeah, so I suppose this is a, a way to talk about the name of the podcast as well, Dustbusters, um, because we're still maybe five books on trying to figure out what on earth this thing is. We're in a second not, trilogy called The Book of Dust. But it's not what we wipe off our our ornaments and our I imagine the catacombs under Oxford have quite a bit of dust quite in there. Quite a lot of dust, but it's dust with a capital D. It is dust with a capital D, and as... We see in a presentation, uh, there is around in this special emulsion, um, this photograph shows an adult and a child, and the adult is surrounded by dust, or the Rusakov field, <laughs> um, and the child is not surrounded by dust. And really, that's what this episode gives us. Not much more than that at all. And I'm really intrigued to see where it goes because dust is utterly fascinating. And it ties everything together. But like between this world and others, there is this dust stuff. And I'm really curious to see how the show explores it. Hasn't done so much just yet, but... I, I cannot wait for that. When you say the books are still figuring out what it is, yes, is is that the sense that it's just been threaded throughout and hasn't been explored, or do we have we know we're going to see what dust does at some point? Yeah, we're going to see how it interacts with people, with their demons, with uh-huh. more so than that. So it's some form of field of energy that can flow. Yeah, that is Between... unites us and binds us. Yes, one might say it's it's a force. <laughs> because out of all these concepts that have been brought up in this one, that's the one that 
in this episode, that's the one that I don't really have much of a sense of. And we talked about, are we, are we going to come back for more? Am I going to come back for more? And that almost feels like something that if this was a Stranger Things, will I actually get an answer? Will I actually see something about dust? Or will I be here at the end of His Dark Materials season one? And we're like, come back next time for more dust. You, if the ending of this series one is where I think it's going to go, you absolutely will be getting lots more interesting things about dust, um, and hopefully a few more in episode two as well. Um, let's let's talk about Lyra briefly, Michael. You mentioned about this this chosen one mm-hmm. narrative, um, which I think you mentioned Harry Potter, um, other kind of young adult fiction that this these are certainly marketed at in bookshops. It's kind of, it slots into that space doesn't it 100% I don't think there's anything in this opening episode that will be surprising to somebody coming from Harry Potter it's not particularly darker or more terrifying or necessarily even more complex up front you still have that opening scene where you have James McAvoy arriving in the night to drop off the baby Lyra at Clark Peter's door is exactly Hagrid at the beginning (laughs) of the Philosopher's Stone movie right and the book but there's something that Daphne Keane brings to the character which already is so wide-eyed but wise that we don't usually see in children's fantasy on screen. You think about how it took a few films for Daniel Radcliffe to even be able to perform a scene uh, convincingly. Daphne Keene is, is, is inhabiting that character immediately. Yeah. No, is she the strong, independent woman that you wish you had seen on screen when you were younger? I think so. I think, yeah, I... I wish I had come to these books actually and for them to have found their way into my, you know, psyche in some way. I was watching this episode and just sort of trying to pinpoint where they might try and take it in a sort of strong female journey type thing. And I think it's definitely well set up. Mm. And but I don't think it's like it treats her too much in that kind of glowing halo of chosen oneness mm-hmm. um i like that she's mucking around that mm-hmm. she's a bit of a raw school and she's not in any way presented on a pedestal to any other character she's just she's as much as one of the boys as uh <laughs> anyone else uh and I, I really love that about that character uh one of those boys is of course roger played by lewin lloyd her best pal um and he he's i think the standout in this we have episode, a lot of time for roger yeah already yeah. Already. Yeah. I, do you believe that friendship, Michael? I believe that friendship. He's a very sweet boy, isn't he? And we have to invest in him because of where he ends up by the end of the episode. I can't say that he's the sort of character I respond to. He's... Really? You didn't think like, wow, she's she's got this guy wrapped around her little finger that she she's trained him to bring him bring her breakfast every day i i do i love this about lyra and i love that you got onto this that lyra's quite dastardly in her own way um, when she's woken up she's thinking oh i thought that was roger with my breakfast <laughs> and she's just so angry that it's not he's not there you know with her sausages so you didn't respond to that michael like, which character made the most impact to you so the character well it's more a performance than the character that, that immediately just resounded as they walk on the screen is Ruth Wilson, who's mm-hmm. an actress I have seen in many films now. I've never really quite gr- grasped her appeal. But in this role, who, who I hear is an integral role for the series, name escaping me right now. Mrs. Coulter. Sorry, I'm sure this is all just absolute sacrilege <laughs> to all of the fans of the, uh, the, the, the series that preaches against dogma. 
but she is just inhabiting that character immediately. And if we, if we, we'll talk eventually about whether we're going to go and continue watching s- with the second episode, to see more of her is why I'd come back. And I'd be interested, Louis, about that character for you because she is she very much presents herself as one of the only female examples of yes. what she is in a world dominated by men. Well, she has that almost. You can almost see the aura around her. And her demon is some kind of... The golden monkey. Golden monkey. Yes. Who, Which is an interesting decision because you'd expect it to be some sort of a prettier, more attractive, maybe, you know, a small pony or, you know, yeah. you wouldn't think of that character with... Well, this is why demons are so interesting and that they settle in our representation of you as a person. It's one thing that I didn't come away from this episode knowing much about is that what exactly demons are. And no, how, I'm completely lost. If a Patronus in Harry Potter is a representation of something in your psyche, in your past, in your trauma or whatever it is, then are the demons supposed to be a representation of your true self in some way or are we not supposed to know that at this stage? Well, well, I don't think yet. I think that's something that we will get onto. And I, the particularly Northern Lights, as we go along, we will establish just how important that connection is, or if this adaptation is, as I hope we will establish how important that relationship is. Um, and Mrs. Coulter will be key to that. And she's, I felt relieved within one second of Ruth Wilson being on screen. She walks through the doors. Um, the music kicks in. Lorne Balfe's amazing score. I, I really like it already. Um, but I was sold straight away. And it was like in that second, I saw her like pushing Nicole Kidman off a cliff. And <laughs> when I go and read these books again, I no longer have to try and force that Kidman image out of my mind because she's just usurped it straight away. I thought she was fantastic. The other key character to pair alongside Miss Coulter is Lord Asriel, played by James McAvoy. We see him at the Northern Lights doing his experiments where he's used his own emulsion. There was a lot of the word emulsion for a few scenes, which I enjoyed. Um, where he's taken a photograph of a city in the sky and it's through the Northern Lights and he takes this back to Oxford and presents it uh, just after having been saved by Lyra from being poisoned, I might add, by Clark Peters. Rascal. Um <laughs> How do we feel about James McAvoy? He's always welcome on screen for me. He's he he always gives committed performances in, in, in a variety. Let's say a variety of roles in films varying in quality. Even this year, we've seen him in Dark Phoenix and in Glass and in Chapter Two and in Chapter Two. He's the hardest working man in Hollywood, isn't he? He's just Mister Tumnus for me. Oh no! Oh yes! Oh no! Oh yes! I mean, he's very good as Mister Tumnus. Yeah, always, he's but... just Mister Tumnus for me. I think there's something, considering that this is a character where we're waiting for the shoe to drop, I'm presuming. Mm-hmm. He, there's something about him where he abandons Lyra twice in this episode, as a baby and then as a young girl, where he's going back and he's going back to the North. To, well, to I'll do... stop you for a moment there, Michael, because he didn't abandon her when she was a baby. He invoked Scholastic Sanctuary. Oh, sorry. And that's an opportunity to do our first glossary sidebar oh, okay. of the series. Thank goodness. Um, and... Just to clear that one up, Scholastic Sanctuary is uh, a practice that is traditionally for academics who, when they arrive at a, a college like Oxford, in need of sanctuary because of how important academia is uh, within the his dark materials, that your studies could be so important and so world-changing uh, that you might need sanctuary in a college. Uh, you can invoke that practice. And what Lord Asriel did 
with Lyra as a baby, which is not traditional, but he invoked Scholastic Sanctuary for the baby. And that is why she is raised in a way by the college. So he's saying this baby will be so important to the world. It needs to be protected and Oxford is the place to do it. And clearly Philip Pullman is playing on so many, such a wide range of influences, many of which we don't usually see in fantasy. So he's clearly talking about um, the... The, the the clash of dogma between religion within British history and there needing to be a space carved out separately from religion for scholarly pursuits to flourish the way that both Oxford and Cambridge were set up generally as religious institutions and there, there's been conflict over that both institutions' histories there. But then also this is a a an age of enlightenment-influenced world where there's still great explorers and adventurers pushing at the boundaries of what is known often in that that sense of is the world flat or is it round and Mm. then that's heresy to some but is just science to others so that's something i'm still getting my head around because maybe we are just fed the same handful of influences in our fantasy harry potter being so clearly based on much of tolkien or much of shakespeare and mythology greek mythology in particular and greek um, tragedy this is clearly its own world. And you see that in the way that it's half steampunk, I guess you could say. Oh, yeah, and definitely. You see, I guess it is a golden compass. The um, What's it Elithiometer. called? Alethiometer. Is that the actual golden compass? They don't say that at any point. They never actually say that. Um, but yeah, that, that appears to be it, although it's not round, is it? <laughs> now, there's the popular uh, Twitter meme where people uh, say that the point within a film where they say that's the title mm. of the film, such as in <laughs> film Chappie they'll say that's Chappie I felt like that watching this episode with my partner who's the fan of the series saying is that uh, is that the Northern Lights there <laughs> is that a golden compass I see um, but I like the fact that they don't make too big a deal of it they, they, they understand that the story they're telling is tantamount to yeah and the alethiometers really kind of dropped in at the end of the episode really but to backtrack slightly to James McAvoy what I think he brings to this role that I think is, is great is that he's still even though he's in his mid-40s and he's been quite a seasoned actor now he's still quite boyish mm. and when I say he abandons her of course he gives her up into scholastic sanctuary and so on but he leaves her behind twice in this episode and when she really wants to go with him he knows that there's skullduggery going on behind the scenes at Oxford he's almost just been po- poisoned and he still leaves her and he what does he shout out the airship everyone's special oh, no no <laughs> This is so good. And this is where I think it's a nice dig at those Harry Potter, Star Wars chosen ones, because Roger screams like she is special about Lyra and McAvoy, as just screams back, everyone's special. I agree. I think that's a great character point that he, well, we don't really know if he has a cause that's so great that requires that dedication or whether he's just chasing the the adventure Mm. and be damned with this loyalty that he has well, to and I, I think this young girl. We see uh, when Mrs. Coulter enters, we see this kind of, this feminine that has not really been in Lyra's life at all. And that we, because we've seen her bouncing off roofs and throwing herself around with Roger and um, all of that, this, all of the, the, her life is controlled by men, really. The only women she encounters are in the kitchens. Mm. And it's, we see she's so adventurous because the person that she has idolised her whole life has been Lord Azure, who's never really been there, been back and forth. And he is this great epitome of masculinity adventurer. And then enter Mrs. Coulter, who is all the elegance and perfume. 
and clearly like clearly powerful but not in that masculine way although she is a missus mm. she's not miss is she so is there a mister <clears throat> will we find out perhaps we will find out could you tell us a little more about Oxford in the books? Because as you say, we get this sense of her running around through quads and over spires and g- going into these little drawing rooms and libraries. We don't get a sense of Oxford outside of the college. And is it Oxford, if it's a world like ours, but different, is it an Oxford that we would recognise? Is it? Does it do they yeah. admit female students? Uh, is there a large student body? What's going on? Um, it's, I, I think... Actually, the the recent books expand on the Oxford a bit more and you get a sense. I think that it feels a bit more medieval, like it's all like little little side streets and like these rivers that people are rowing up and down still, not just for racing, but like there is there is transport and export all happening along that. And I think it feels more Dickensian, perhaps, as well. but I wish that it did actually bounce around into those little adventures because, as I said, those opening few chapters in Oxford, where it's, even if it's just silly games and jumping in rivers and throwing mud at boys, mm. like, like those bits that help build what the city feels like. And that's the foundation you need, yeah, I think. And, I, I, and we reached the end of the episode and Lyra's decided to leave. And in a way, I would have maybe have liked two episodes in Oxford because mm. you do feel that lurch when she does go. The moment she's excited, she's heading to London and who knows what might happen there. And she's going to go obviously even further. And yeah, that's that's where we leave Lyra. And of course, poor Roger trapped in a cage as well. Um, <laughs> he has a big lol for that, for sure. <laughs> Definitely, Louis. You said you liked Roger. <laughs> just the way you said it yeah who's gonna cook the sausages yeah um i did want to you mentioned james cosmo i'd forgotten about this and uh, it was only when you mentioned james mcavoy as well that's two uh reappearances from the gang of the chronicles of narnia the 2005 film the lion the witch in the wardrobe who does cosmo play uh cosmo so in here this i love this he plays father corum and in the lion the witch in the wardrobe which famously philip pullman hates and that this is this is the antithesis Mm -hmm. of those series and he rallies against c.s lewis and those works and in that film james cosmo played father christmas (laughs) (laughs) really i mean he has the beard yeah it's good were there any other really supporting characters who we should remember from this? Because there's a big bunch of characters introduced. The king of something or other turns up at one point. Yes. We have a scene that I guess is at the Magisterium where we have like some spies chatting What away. about the gobblers? Yeah. Oh, I mean, yes. <laughs> all of this, I think particularly um, the Egyptians, as we get out to the Fens later in the series, that's there's such a wonderful bunch of characters who we only got a few minutes of. And I, I really can't wait for everyone to meet them. Um and it's so strange because I've forgotten a lot of the Golden Compass, thankfully. Um, and I've forgotten who played those characters. So I've had the joy for the last 10 years of imagining these however I liked. And I think these this casting is brilliant across the board, really. Um, but we, we should probably wrap up there. But I think it's time to talk about our inner demons. So we talked a lot in this episode about demons. What are they? Um, how much of a connection do we have? Are they a soul? 
we still like Michael, you're still unsure about what they yeah. actually do. Um, Louis, I've tried talking to you about demons a lot <laughs> over the years. Um, but now, now I've got, a, got your mic. We have to talk about it. Um, and I want to use this section of our show to talk to our guests about what they think their demons might be. Mm-hmm. And this came up because I, I've never really pinned down what mine might be. And I was texting oh. another fan about this and she immediately replied saying, well, it's obviously a red squirrel. <laughs> Obviously. Uh, and as soon as I heard that, I thought, yeah, why not? I'll take that. So I'm settled on a red squirrel. I've had my ceremony. I've got my ring with a squirrel on it. Okay. Uh, that's me. Louis, where do you think you are? I think over the series, it might change. Maybe you're still in a point of innocence. So this I point. think we had a conversation about a week or so ago about what my deem would be. And Jake, you very kindly said perhaps a swan. Mm. But then that invokes the idea of, you know, elegant up top, chaotic, hardworking <laughs> underneath. Also, how often are you on a body of water? It's, so you'll have a swan just I, waddling behind do, you all the time. I do like to be in the water. Perhaps you're more of an untitled goose demon. Maybe, maybe. <laughs> just wanting to just cause absolute chaos in the village. I think maybe I'm not decided and I'm still, ch- although I'm past the age of when it's settled, I think I'm still changing. Still I'm still changing. shifting. Is there a multiple choice questionnaire we can fill out or a flow chart? Can you be allergic to your demon? Because I, I am allergic to most household animals, at mm. least. Are you Pro- allergic to dogs? Dogs and I cats. Don't know about Remember, you. Michael, this is Tom Hooper's demon, so they're made with digital fur technology. <laughs> Right. So, of course, you'd not have to worry about it. I'm not that. allergic to the fur, though. It's in the saliva. <laughs> Maybe my demon is Taylor Swift from the upcoming Cats. I've, oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> I don't want to be around when that settles. Um, Michael, you're quite scholarly. I'm imagining like kind of like a like a otter, but with glasses. <gasps> yes! In a, in a library. And I don't know why that oh, is, but... As, I'm not sure. I th- I, if you asked my partner, Mim, what her favourite animal of all time is, it would be an otter. So well, I then. think you've oh, bullseyed oh, it there, Jay. Oh my... Okay. So there we are. Michael's in a But demon. the glasses would come off as soon as I go down any sort of slide into Yeah, but water. it looks nice, Goggles, it? maybe? Would it have to be like... An otter with goggles. Yes. But Michael doesn't wear glasses in his real life. Yeah, but, but the demon is the reflection of the inner I me. suppose yeah. so, yeah. Exactly. Um, I so, feel sad that I can't pin down my demon. Well, by the end of this series, we'll we'll have figured this one out. Um, um, so thank you. For, that's one inner demon figured out on this podcast. We might have to wrap up there, but if people want to keep in touch with us, um, you can do so on Twitter. Uh, I'm there as at Jake H. Cunningham, and the good folks at Penguin have given me some swag to be given out for a competition or two. So do make sure you're following there for a chance to win lots of... Like, nice badges and books and notebooks and t-shirts so keep your eyes peeled for that and louis people can find you on twitter as louisa maycock but my demon account is um at girls on tops tees and it's a company we make t-shirts you might have seen them around if you tend to frequent the cinema they're white t-shirts with the name of various women in film in black or red or gold so you can follow me over there at girls on tops tees and michael yes i am michael j leader yeah. And uh, if people have been listening to this and thought, oh, I wish I could hear Michael and Jake have conversations about Japanese animated films, they can do that as well. Yes, because we have the podcast Ghibliotech, which is all about 
the Japanese animation studio, Studio Ghibli. You may know them because they made films like Spirited Away, Princess Mononoke, Howl's Moving Castle. And I think there's a there's a little bit of Lyra in Chihiro, maybe. Yes, there's a sequence in this film, as you said, the emulsion, where mm. there's a guy on an airship taking a photograph of a castle in the sky, or a city in the sky in this case. That's very similar to a scene in the film Castle in the Sky, one of Studio Ghibli's first films. Yeah, um, so we're releasing new episodes of that at the moment, too. Or delve into the back catalogue if you're a big fan of Studio Ghibli. And that's about it. Uh, thank you so much for listening. We're looking forward to exploring more of the worlds of his dark materials next week on Dustbusters. Dustbusters is produced by Jake Cunningham. That's me. Our music is by Dan Yakano, And this episode was edited by Jamie Maisner. <laughs>